Easter egg. And for those of us, not those of us, I shouldn't say that. Those of you younger than me who grew up in a digital world, I mean, Easter eggs are probably nothing new to you. You know that there's these fun secrets in video games that you grew up with. If you click on a certain thing or go into a certain door or whatever, that something comes up. The very first one of these Easter eggs was in an Atari game called Adventure that came out in 1979. And there was a particular pixel that you could hover over and the the secret message created by Warren Robinette, who was the original programmer, would come up. And the, the little pixel is called The Gray Dot, which is a pretty exciting title for it. Uh, it was a forbidden thing for things for people to do because at the time Atari was not putting its its programmers' names on anything because they were worried that the programmers would get headhunted by um, their various competition. Um, so this guy had hidden his name and everything in there, and when he uh, left Atari, he ne he had never told anybody about it. And it was it was finally found by someone. Someone reported back what was going on. I you know I hover over the gray dot, and here it is. They initially were going to remove it, but then they just decided to embrace it, and then Easter eggs sort of became a thing in games and websites and all over the place. And, and it's similar to geocaching, where you have something that's familiar, and yet you just find it in, in you just look just under the grass in some place, and you find new treasures, new ways of looking at things. And so geocaching scripture, geocaching is this rarefied sort of sport hobby of finding these little treasures in familiar pathways. Usually they are out in nature somewhere and you get the coordinates uh, through a website or an app and or through word of mouth sometimes and you go out and find it and then you sometimes sign a log that say, hey, I was here and I found this. And, and that's a metaphor that I thought was perfect for how to read scripture, um, how to look at scripture, the way I've interacted with scripture as I've gotten older. Um, I find that the the pathways of it are very very familiar to me. I'm you know my, what you might call evangelistic. I'm a pastor's kid, and I was pretty much born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. I actually asked some friends of mine about their most evangelistic memories, um, who are church junkie, church mouse kids like me. Uh, one of them wrote back. She said, "Missions Week, when we had to go to church every single night and listen to missionary wives and kids sing songs in Spanish, and then there were slideshows." Lots and lots and lots of slideshows. And they would teach us all Spanish phrases. Look at more slides. And yes, anyway, evangelistic. that's the way it was. And so for me and for people like me, sometimes the Bible becomes a little over-familiar. And of course, it has its own dimension. You just have to know where to look. You have to know which gray dot to click on to bring up the right thing, or which rock to look under to find the geocache, and, and that's what geocaching scripture is all about. So anyway, let's do it. Okay, so being a small-time podcaster, obviously, I, I think it's more, I can't decide if it's the money or the glamour that keeps me in this. I mean, knowing that... Um, that virtually tens of people are listening to my podcast um, every week or so. I mean, just tens upon tens. 
Um, so far, I've gotten some good feedback from big fans of the show, uh, if you want to call them that. For one, uh, people keep telling me, I, I really like your, your podcast. It's short. And I, I think, well, you mean like it's informed and interesting and funny? No, it's, it's not very long. So, well, there we go. Great. Awesome. I'll stop talking about that because this will get too long and I'll drop all my tens of fans. Um, also want to send a shout out to Carissa Williams, who is a fan of the show, who sent, who gave me, um, was inspired for some reason at Hobby Lobby and bought me a blanket to put over my blanket fort. And I'll have to put a picture of it up in the show notes here. Um, it is, um, from what I figure, it's all um, of the like Catholic and Orthodox icons for about four or five centuries, all put together in some kind of collage and made into a blanket. It's a little terrifying, um, but it's very warm and comfortable, and it's on my head right now. So shout out to Carissa. Thank you very much. Um, but let's get into our reading for today. Um, this is a, one of my favorite characters in the Gospels. And again, I'm following the Advent readings uh, out of the lectionary. And the lectionary is the sort of schedule of readings that some of the more liturgical churches go by, um, the uh, Catholic and Episcopal and um, Lutheran and a few others. And I'm trying to sort of follow those through Advent, but being a typical evangelical, I'll eventually start freeforming it and making it all up as I go along. Um, but what I want to talk about today is one of my favorite characters and one of my associations in, in his file in my brain. This song always comes out. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Does that sound familiar at all to anyone? John the Baptist. Or John the Baptizer, as he's called sometimes in the KJV. Um, he came on the scene, and people were, were really surprised at the kind of person he was. Um, there hadn't been a, a person like that, a prophet-type person, in Jewish culture for centuries. And here's this guy who comes, dresses and looks like Elijah, starts yelling about certain things on the side of town. Um, this kind of very interesting. I don't, I don't know if any of you have ever seen, um, and this is an odd recommendation, but the movie The Last Temptation of Christ is really kind of fascinating. Um, the, the movie itself is sort of a horrible, warmed-over mess of different plot lines, but the John the Baptist um, part of it is kind of interesting. It's almost because he's out in this absolute, like, rugged, desert-like wilderness, and it's very almost cultic. There's all this weird music. There's all these people dancing around in various states of like weird mystical ecstasy. And it's kind of disturbing. And John the Baptist himself is kind of disturbing looking, wild hair, dirty, uh, snaggletooth sort of guy. But I'm guessing that it actually is more accurate to what it was like. Anyway, one of the things that people thought when they saw John the Baptist come on the scene, one of the things that was so exciting about him was they thought, are you one of the Maccabees, come back to free us from the Romans. The Maccabees were a, um, a group that had, that had helped to free the Jews and lead the Jews away from Greek, um, Greek rule a few centuries before that, and they thought, is this another one of the Maccabees? Now, the Maccabees, of course, translates to the hammer, which is pretty awesome. So they were led by Judas Maccabeus, 
not the Judas we know, but Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. And they wondered if it was hammer time again, and he had come back. And so, but what they found out, you know, was that he was he was leading a spiritual revival. He was not leading a kind of insurrection that they were hoping for. Um, and one of the things that got him in trouble was that he was asking people to be baptized. Now, that was kind of a, in, it was a known idea. It was not near as central to the Jewish narrative as it is to the Christian narrative. But it was one of the ways for Gentile converts to become Jews was to do it through a water cleansing ritual, very similar to baptism. And what got John in so much trouble was he was asking the Jewish people to go through the water ritual. To put it in Christian terms, he was asking the saved to get saved. Essentially going like turning to Billy Graham and saying, come forward for the altar call. This did not help him to win friends and influence people, basically saying, none of you guys are authentically God's people, and you need to become God's people again. So all you Pharisees and all you Sadducees and all you scribes and all you professional religious people need to start over. And that got him in trouble. Trying to save the saved. So he develops a lot of different enemies um, and a lot of interesting friends and, of course, one very, very interesting cousin. The reading for today is from Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And it's an interesting answer here. And I've, I've always heard this one and thought, oh, yeah, well, Jesus is saying, what happened? You know, I, people are being raised from the dead, people are walking again, all those things. And all those things are important, and that is actually what's happening. But... He's also referring to Isaiah 35 and several other Old Testament places where it says, you will not hear, you will not see, you're, you're seeing, you will not see, seeing you will be blind, hearing you will be deaf. And what Jesus is jumping in and saying here is that not only is this literally happening, i.e. people being healed of these ailments, but that the kingdom is coming, that people's Spiritual eyes are being opened. Their spiritual ears are being opened. That they are being healed in the sense of healing in their relationship with God again. So Jesus is reporting back that what the, the prophet said was going to happen, metaphorically, is happening. And is happening so strongly that it's actually happening literally. And I think about that when I think of the resurrection I think of this great metaphor for the end of the law of sin and death, the end of the age of sin and death, happening so acutely that it happens literally, and that a body literally walks back from the grave. Love John the Baptist. John the Baptist, whose greatest move, whose most memorable contribution was to step aside. 
He must increase, I must decrease. And John the Baptist would be rejoicing in that prison cell, rejoicing as he faced the executioners, saying, it's done. My work is done. And my work was to introduce this one who is here now. Reminds me of a quote that I just love um, from the Count of Zissendorf. We all know the Count of Zissendorf. You know that guy. Um, I have no idea who he is, but I do like this quote a lot. He says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. A friend of mine who's one of the most talented preachers I know has this, uh, this quote framed on his wall to remind him every day that he's there to shine light on Christ and disappear. And this is what John the Baptist did. And I think of my own, my own life in ministry, um, that I was a pastor uh, of a small church in uh, a, a different city in the Midwest. And um, I helped uh, move the church and move the time of the service. And, and we did a lot of work and we had a lot of fun and we had a lot of adventures. Um, but I, I wasn't able to see that, that big growth that everybody talks about, you know, and I wasn't able to make myself, um, you know, start blogging about how to, how to double your church growth in six months or less or whatever. I didn't see that. Um, and there, and there was a, uh, a young guy who was in the business next to ours. We were in a strip mall and I, I reached out to him and I developed a friendship with him. Um, and that was kind of the end of it. You know, I prayed for him, like I prayed for anybody else in the neighborhood. Um, and then, uh, we moved away and, uh, I got some pictures from the church about six months later, um, and saw this young guy, um, I'll call him Shiloh and Shiloh was kind of this, this, uh, sort of scraggly looking dude, um, kind of a hippie type. Um, and there he was, they, they were doing a baptism in their very small baptismal. And somebody was just taking pictures of, of the day to send to me. And there Shiloh's coming up out of the water. And I had, I never thought he would be interested at all in faith. Here I did the work to meet him and to connect him to the faith, at least in my own mind, that's what I did. And yet I don't get to participate in this part of things. And that was painful. That's, that's hard. That's hard. And I think it was hard for maybe John the Baptist to watch when Jesus came through to say, I'll take it from here. Was it hard for him to give that up? I don't know. But for me, it's like the true test of live, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. To know that Shiloh has met Christ and I wasn't there to help him through that last introduction to, to be there at his baptism, to be there when, you know, the thing all came together. I was just one of the people along a very long route and a very long road who laid one of the bricks. And that's enough. Pax Humana. Cheers.